All right, well, as I said a moment ago, go ahead and be turning to Isaiah chapter number 40. But as you do, I want to mention a few things about this last portion of the book of Isaiah as we enter into it this evening. The book of Isaiah is largely divided into three portions. The first portion uh, that we studied in the first Apollos course from chapter 1 down to chapter number 35, various prophecies that God gave to the nation of Israel, uh, particularly regarding the, their imminent destiny. We could use it in that term, that phrase, uh, to, to denote it. And then chapters 36 through 39, a historical narrative uh, regarding some events that happened in Israel's history. And that's what we talked about last week. I encourage you, if you weren't able to be here last week, get online and listen to that from last week. It'll help frame a little bit of the book of Isaiah and what uh, God is teaching us through it. And then the last portion will begin tonight, and it extends all the way from chapter 40 to the end of the book, chapter number 66. It provides for us 27 chapters, and it shouldn't be lost on us the unique parallel between the overall structure of Scripture and the structure of the book of Isaiah. Uh, the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are dealing largely with Israel and her imminent history. What's going on with her as a nation in that season, in that time. Chapters 27, or, uh, chapter number 40 to chapter 20, 66, the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, in many ways correlate to our 27 books of the New Testament and remind us of the revelation of Christ and His glory and God's purpose for the ages. So if we were to divide this section of Scripture, we would find that it divides pretty neatly into three separate sections, each totaling nine chapters. And so tonight, with the Lord's help, we'll look at the first section of nine chapters, chapters 40 through 48. And then the next section would be chapters 49 through 57, and the final would be chapters 58 through 66. And all of these chapters, though certainly they, they take in Israel and God's plan for them and their destiny as a nation, the singular focus in all of this portion of Scripture, from where we're at to the end of the book of Isaiah, is on the person of Jesus Christ. And He is presented in these three portions of Scripture in three different ways. Now, I will remind you what the overall theme of, of Isaiah is. God is my salvation, or salvation is of the Lord. Isaiah's name, of course, means that very thing, that salvation is of the Lord. And the question then becomes, if God is going to bring salvation to His people Israel and to humanity at large, then what is the means or what is the conduit through which God is going to do that? We could say it this way, who will the Savior be? What will the Savior look like? What will the Savior do? And we find that in these passages of Scripture, God reveals three different elements to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, of course, is the Savior of men and the Son of God. And so this first portion that we'll look at tonight presents to us the serving Savior. In other words, it's going to present Christ as the servant of God, doing the will and bidding of the Father. Chapters 49 through 57 present to us the suffering Savior, present to us the fact that God, that Israel had rejected God's plan, and that God would, through the suffering of His appointed servant, would redeem Israel unto Himself. And then chapters 58 through 66 present to us the sovereign Savior. And you have uh, a great many passages that sort of take in a sweeping vista of the millennial kingdom. Now, the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign is touched on in all these portions of Scripture, and we'll talk about it a little bit tonight as well. 
But those passages in particular paint a portrait of what God's plan, when it's brought to completion, looks like. So those are the three large divisions of this portion of Isaiah. Now, I want to mention two things that will help you understand as you read the book of Isaiah what you're, what you're di- uh, dissecting. Uh, when we read it, we read it with the privilege of hindsight. We read it here some 2,000 years after Calvary. We know what happened in Israel's history in the imminent future and also all the way up to their rejection of the Messiah to their diaspora, their scattering by the Gentile world powers, to even this very day, when though there is a a national entity of Israel, they are certainly not the nation that God has designed them to be. We have the privilege of hindsight. But when Isaiah wrote this, it was written to a group of people to whom all of this was still future tense. And so it's important to understand Two realities about the book of Isaiah, if you're going to unravel what we're going to study tonight and in the coming two lessons. One of the things that I would point out is this truth. Israel could, when Christ came preaching the kingdom of heaven, Israel could have received their Messiah. Now what I mean by that is this. The first coming of Christ was not some bluff or some feint. It it was not merely lip service. It wasn't just pageantry. When Christ came and preached the, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, it was a legitimate offer to Israel as a nation to receive Him as their Messiah. And when you read the book of Isaiah, it's important to note, as with all the Old Testament prophets, that the church age is not really in view. Because God's ideal plan for Israel initially was that Israel would receive Christ as their Messiah and that God's plan for Israel would go uninterrupted in regards to their history and to their experience. Now, we know that didn't happen, and we know that God wasn't surprised by that. But it's important to note that as this prophecy was given to Israel, it was given in legitimacy. And the offer that was given to Israel to receive their Messiah was given in legitimacy. Israel could have received their Messiah they could have proclaimed him king. If that had happened, it's likely that the Romans would have crucified him nonetheless as an agitator, as a rebel leader of an insurrection against their power. He would have risen from the dead just as he did after he was crucified. He would have likely established the church, but the church would have been a largely Jewish affair, would have probably been much the same in the vein of how Old Testament Judaism was, in that it was a Jewish affair that Gentiles could proselyte into. And the Romans, who some 70 years later would destroy Jerusalem, likely would have attempted to do that very thing. The Roman emperors that that inflicted such intense, severe persecution against uh, the believers would have likely... Uh, still exhibited that persecution against believers, but it would have been against the Jewish nation. And uh, the uh, Roman emperor would have likely uh, sought to lay siege to and destroy Jerusalem, just as historically he did. But Christ would have returned in glory, overthrown the armies of the Roman Antichrist, and would have set up his kingdom then. All of this was set up to be in force had Israel chosen to receive Christ as their Messiah. Now, again, I'd remind you that Israel did not do that. And that didn't surprise God. God knew that Israel would not do it. But God never extends any hand of mercy to anybody that it's not in sincerity. 
And the prophecies and promises given to Israel. The reason when you read these portions of Scripture, there seems to be this seamless transition between the ministry of Christ and the millennial kingdom is because had Israel received Christ, there would have been a seamless transition from the ministry of Christ and the millennial kingdom. And so it's important to note, it's going to look to you and I as Gentiles in this church age, as though this passage of Scripture is a little bit schizophrenic in nature. You're going to say, wait a minute, preacher, I thought we were talking about uh, about the Messiah, and we were talking about Calvary, and we were talking about the miracles of Jesus, and now we're talking about the Antichrist, now we're talking about the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, why did we just skip over this large swath of time? Because Israel could have skipped over it had they received their Messiah, but instead they rejected Him. So that's the first point that's important to note. The second is this. In this passage of Scripture, this portion that we're reading tonight, chapters 40 through 48, Israel is presented as God's servant. But it's also important to note that Israel did a poor job of ever presenting themselves as God's servant. They did not behave as a servant to God. They did not live as a servant to God. And certainly at this time in Israel's history, they are not representative of God's servant. And so you have an interesting typology in force in the book of Isaiah. Israel is God's servant. And yet we find that statements that are made about Israel could only be rightly applied to Jesus Christ. Not all of them, but a great many of them. And in fact, many of them are quoted in the New Testament as applying directly to Jesus Christ. So preacher, why would that be? Well, because Christ in His earthly ministry was the perfect Israelite. He fulfilled God's ideal of what Israel should have been. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises concerning Israel. His primary ministry was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. John says he came unto his own. Matthew chapter number 1, when the angel announces the name of Jesus, says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the book of Isaiah largely has in view Christ as the servant of God, fulfilling God's promises concerning Israel, and standing in their stead as the perfect servant of God on their behalf. As we move into the section after this, we'll see that that serving Savior became a suffering Savior. And He died in their place. And just as they were to be holiness unto the Lord, He was holiness unto the Lord. But in this portion of Scripture, we're going to read passages that talk about Israel my servant. And Israel being my servant. Then it'll talk about Jesus Christ. Because He certainly was the consummate Jew. He was the perfect Israelite. He was the fulfiller and keeper of the law of God. And were it not for His righteousness, nobody, Jew or Gentile alike, could hope to be rightly called the servant of God. So these chapters before us divide themselves into three portions. I'll go ahead and mention them to you, but you can see them in your notes. The first three chapters, chapters 40, 41, and 42, present to us Christ's earthly ministry to Israel. And we'll find this terminology, the servant of the Lord, mine servant, mine elect, Used, but it's not reflective of Israel predominantly, but rather of Jesus Christ, because He was the servant of God and still is the servant of God. And then chapters 43, 44, and 45 show us the millennial majesty of Israel. In other words, the fact that God had a plan to set Israel like a precious gem in a, in a jeweler's setting, in a right position, in a stronghold, in a place of glory and prominence. And we'll see those promises in force in chapters 43 through 45. And then chapters 46, 47, and 48 
turn to a more immediate threat, and that is the Babylonian captivity of Israel. So let's begin reading tonight in Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 1. Let's read down to verse number 8. We're not going to read all of these chapters uh, or, or these chapters in their entirety. Time would not allow us to do so. But let's read chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. And I want you to notice something about the Lord Jesus and how he's prophesied in this passage. begins this way. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass. And all the goodness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you immediately picked up on some themes that no doubt jumped off of the page at you and reminded you of some New Testament truths. But here in this passage, dealing with the earthly ministry of Christ, the perfect Israelite, the servant of God, the embodiment of God's vision of what His people should be is introduced to us in this opening passage. We see His person revealed, the servant of the Lord. Here we have language that invokes, of course, the ministry and testimony of John the Baptist. But before we get there, I want you to notice the message that God intended for Israel at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 2. It says, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Have you ever thought about just what remarkable uh, message the Lord Jesus Christ came bearing to the nation of Israel? I mean, for him to come and to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You understand that's the kingdom that they had been waiting for thousands of years to come to pass. And when he came and offered to be their king and to set up this kingdom and to be their potentate and their sovereign, it was a legitimate offer that they should be delivered from the hands of their enemies and that they should rest in peace and tranquility. We find an introduction to John the Baptist in his ministry in verse 3. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. And Christ himself, of course, said that John was that voice. We'll remind you that whenever they were talking about the ministry of John the Baptist and the fact that he was the the harbinger, that he was the, the clarion call of repentance to the nation of Israel for the coming Messiah, they pointed to the fact that the Old Testament ends with a prophecy that Elijah would come before the Messiah would come. And Christ answered back and said that John the Baptist had come in the spirit and power of Elijah and you've done with him what you will. In other words, saying he was John or he was Elijah to your generation. He was that voice and he could have been the trumpet that sounded that called you to assembly to receive your king. 
What was Christ's intention? That every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. In other words, his intention was to rule in justice and with judgment. We often associate this with the millennial kingdom and of course it will be enforced then. But it could have been enforced at that time had they received their Messiah. And then verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Remember that in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus Christ is the express image of God's glory. In other words, he was the fulfillment of all of these things. He came preaching the kingdom of heaven and revealing to them that if they would believe on him, if they would look to him, that he could deliver them and he could give them righteousness and he could give them peace. Not only do we see his person revealed, but look over in chapter 41 with me. Chapter number 41, and let's read beginning at verse number 8. Here we have this language again. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, thou art my servant, I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them, and shalt not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Here we have extended to Israel the peace of God for them as a nation. Now God makes all these promises to His servant. And you say, well, preacher, Israel is the servant of God. Very true, but they were not serving Him when Christ came. And Christ indeed was the servant of God, God's elect. In other words, do you see a theme emerging here? They could have had everything that God promised them in the person of Christ. But because of their rebellion and and stiff neck and because of their stout-heartedness and because of their rebelliousness against God, they were not worthy of that title in and of themselves. You say, preacher, how could they ever have gotten it? Well, they could have looked to him who was worthy of that title and seen in him the substitution, the propitiation for their sins as a nation. Again, I can't stress it enough, and I don't know how we miss this. Every Christmas season, it seems like we read this verse, but somehow miss this fundamental truth about God's dispensational plan. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. In other words, the earthly promises of God and their fulfillment and the spiritual promises of God and their fulfillment were wrapped up in the person of Christ and offered to Israel as a nation. Had they received Him, they wouldn't have just received deliverance from Roman oppression. And the problem is this, they wanted to be delivered from Rome, they just didn't want to be delivered from their sins. They wanted to be freed, they just didn't need to be forgiven in their eyes. They, they didn't mind having a potentate, a king, who could deliver them and reign and give them freedom from their enemies. But they didn't want pardon from their sins because that would have required them to admit that they were broken and sinful and lost indeed. 
But here in these verses, we have this offer of peace extended to Israel, the servant of God. You say, preacher, they weren't the servant of God. No, but Christ was the servant of God. And in Him was all the promises of God fulfilled. It's a reminder to you and I, even in this day, that peace only comes from knowing the Prince of Peace. You see, lest we as wild branches that have been grafted into the olive tree boast ourselves against the natural branch, lest we as Gentiles boast ourselves against Israel and against God's elect, we ought to remind ourselves that we likewise would have no right to stand were it not for Him and who He is. You see, it's no different for them than it is for us. And it's no different for us than it was for them. It all came down to Jesus Christ and what they would do with Him. We see His peace revealed. Look in chapter 42 with me. I want you to notice the first seven verses of this chapter. Chapter 42, we find His purpose revealed. So His person revealed. Who is He? He's God in the flesh. He's the express image of God's glory. He's the appointed of God, His Messiah, His servant that's been sent. Chapter 41, His peace is revealed. What He desired to do for Israel if they would have received Him. But in chapter number 42, we have His purpose revealed. You know, we could probably also use this phrase, His process is revealed. In other words, how did He seek to effect this? Or what was the purpose of His ministry or what God had called Him to do? Notice verse number 1. The Bible says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighted. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Let's pause there and I want to point something out because it's always good. I old preacher once said, if you're walking down the road and you see a rock, you better kick it because you don't know when you're going to walk down that road again. Do you know there's only one time in the Bible that the term elect is used in the towards an individual? And it's here in Isaiah chapter number 42. Now, Israel as a people is called elect. And even you and I as saved individuals in the New Testament are called elect. But only one time does it say an individual was elected. The Calvinists want us to believe that God's picking out a baseball team. And some are elected to go to heaven and some are elected to go to hell. And you've got to hope you're part of the elect. Well, here's a beautiful truth in the Old Testament. Only one time did God look at an individual and say, they're my elect. I've chosen them. They are my choice. And guess who it was? It was Jesus Christ. Say, so, well, preacher, that's a problem for us. No, that's not a problem because if we believe on Jesus Christ, we can be in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You see, I'm not elect and you're not elect, but when we believe on Jesus Christ, we're made part of the elect because we're in Him. So here we have Israel as God's servant, but we know it's not Israel because they didn't bring to pass any of these things. So it must be an Israelite that embodies this. And of course it is. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Verse number two says this about him. He shall not cry, (coughs) nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. This passage is quoted in the New Testament. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, this is the Lord speaking, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness 
and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light to the Gentiles to open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Now, again, if you're a student of the Bible, you know almost the entirety of that portion of Scripture we just read is at one point or another quoted in the Gospels relating to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. But stop and consider. This is what God wanted for Israel as a nation. His desire was that as they received the Messiah, that true righteousness be wrought in them and that Christ reigning from Jerusalem exercise judgment, not against men's will, but in accordance with it because they had seen the splendor and glory of His majesty. And that Israel as a nation be a testimony to a lost, broken, and alienated world of what the grace of God could do. That's what God wanted out of Israel. But they did not present themselves as us. They did not fulfill that task. I'll tell you who did fulfill it though. The Lord Jesus Christ. Israel, God's servant. Yes, they didn't fulfill that role. But Jesus Christ, the perfect Israelite, He fulfilled it indeed. He is the elect of God, the chosen, in whom God delighted. He is the one that God has put His Spirit upon. He's the one that shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And I don't know that that necessarily entails, although God certainly will judge every unrighteous nation, I don't think that's talking about pouring wrath and judgment upon them, but bringing justice to their societies. He says this, He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause His voice to be heard in the street. How many times do you remember? that? And, and you won't find an example in the Gospels where Christ stayed anywhere He wasn't wanted. He always, we just preached Sunday morning on the maniac of Gadara. When those people came out and prayed him to depart out of their coast, guess what? He did it. And there were times that, that men got him and sought to force him to be a sort of king. And he refused because he knew the heart of the people was not for that and was not with that. Why? Because he's not seeking to do anything in, in uh, counterimposing himself uh, or superimposing himself upon men's wills, but in accordance with it. The reason it says a bruised reed shall he not break and a smoking flax shall he not quench is it's saying this, that he's not going to put his thumb on the scale at all. He's not going to force men one way or the other. If he sees a bruised reed, he won't be the one to break it. If he sees a smoking flax, he won't be the one to quench it. He didn't cry in the streets. Men thronged about him to hear from him. But he didn't seek to give himself audience. Why? Because Israel had to, of their own choice, receive him. He didn't come to be taken by force and made a king. He came to win their hearts and for them to receive Him as their Savior. But I'm glad of verse 4, He shall not fail nor be discouraged. He still has that plan. It's not been discouraged till He have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for His law. Verse 6, The Lord says of Jesus Christ, I have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee a covenant for the people for a light of the Gentiles. One of the most fascinating things in the earthly ministry of Christ is to see how even though he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, still yet there are moments when Gentiles would seek him out. There were times when a Syrophoenician woman came and said, My daughter hath a devil and needs to be healed. Even after our Lord was born, there were men came from the east because they had seen his star in the heavens. And then just before Calvary in John chapter 12, certain Greeks came to Philip and said, We would see Jesus. He was not just a light to Israel. He was a light to the Gentiles as well. Today, the church is largely a Gentile affair. God will save any Jew that comes to him by faith, but today it's largely a Gentile affair. And that light that's been given to the Gentiles has changed many Gentile lives 
mine included. What's his purpose? To open the blind eyes and to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. So in these first three chapters, we see the earthly ministry to Israel largely on display. But then I want you to notice there is a transition that happens. And God begins to talk to Israel. He's still using the terminology of Israel as his servant. But it's apparent that if you look back at the history of Israel and what God has done, that the things that transpire from verse 43 down through verse, or through chapter 43 down through chapter 45 relate to a still yet fulfillment of God's prophecies and promises. Now again, we know what happened. We know that Israel did not indeed receive her Messiah. They rejected him. They nailed him to a cross. They refused. They going about to establish their own righteousness have rejected the righteousness of God. And so that break, that transition that could have happened smoothly, but instead there was a break. And within that space betwixt the two, we now live in this church age. In Isaiah's day, when he was viewing these prophecies, was presented as seamless to him because it was offered as seamless to Israel. And so in, in practical terms and timeline, between chapter 42 and chapter 43, we skip thousands of years to a time still yet unrevealed, over the church age to the time when God will usher in His millennial kingdom and bring to fruition all these promises. He points to the fact that there would be three events associated with that. Notice chapter 43, beginning in verse 1, we learn that there will be a gathering of Israel that will take place. Verse number 1 says this, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Let me pause there and say the imagery is very rich there. Uh, Often in the Bible, when large bodies of water are spoken of, it denotes the idea of large masses or multitudes of people or the nations. And certainly Israel has passed through the nations from A.D. 70 until this very day. But, you know, even through all that, God knew that there was a remnant and he's been with them and he's preserved Israel as a people even to this very day. And then fire denotes the idea of affliction. And it's certainly been true that wherever they've gone, they've been a hated and despised people. They've been a persecuted and afflicted people. But through that, God has retained and preserved them. Verse three, for I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Now, there'll be a great many preachers, you'll see a lot of them on TV, that want to associate prophecies like this with 1948. They want to say, well, that's when God gathered them all back in the land. You know, the only problem with that is if that prophecy was fulfilled then, it's the only prophecy God gave regarding the gathering of Israel that was fulfilled then. Because the gathering of Israel back into the land is not associated largely with formalism and and, and ceremony and, and, you know, a lot of times heartfelt atheism. Even though they are culturally Jewish, they reject any sort of real concept of God. 
That's not the gathering that God promised. But there is a gathering that God's promised. And one day God will gather them in. At the end of the tribulation period, after they, through the fire and furnace of affliction, have had their will broken and come to a saving knowledge of Christ, after Zechariah says they've looked on Him whom they've pierced and believed on Him, a nation will be born in a day and God will gather them from the corners of the earth. There will be a gathering of Israel in that day. They'll be brought back into the land, not just as a, as a, not just as cultural people, but as a righteous people. Not just, not just bonded together through ethnicity, but through righteousness and life and truth. That's God's design. God's interest is not just creating some sort of homogenistic, uh, homogenous ethnic group. That's not his, his design and goal with it. If that was it, he could have done that in far simpler ways. His design was to bring about a people righteous unto himself. And that's what God is going to do. There will be a gathering of Israel. Isaiah chapter 43 says. Look at chapter 44 with me. We find in chapter 44 more description of what that day is going to be like. And here again, it places us squarely in the millennial kingdom. Not in 1948 or in the years to follow, but in the still future to come. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeserin, whom I have chosen. Jeserin or Jeserin was a common name for Israel when they had been living in rebellion. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water course. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. Now, again, there are some that would try to connect this uh, only with the day of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit of the Lord upon the apostles who were Jewish, undoubtedly. uh, And uh, on that day, who the Bible describes them as speaking with other known tongues uh, or rather speaking in their own tongue, being heard in other known tongues by the people's all gathered there on that day. But the problem is what follows does not track. Uh, here, Isaiah is speaking about a people planted in the land. Shortly after Pentecost, they were scattered from the land. Here he describes Israel as a nation, calling themselves by the name of the Lord and believing on Him. But we don't find that Israel as a nation turned to God in the wake of Pentecost. We find that they turned more hostile towards God in the wake of Pentecost. One of the reasons they persecuted the disciples, they said, they seek to bring this man's blood upon us and our children. They said, we're not responsible for what happened to him. It's not a spirit and heart of repentance, no. Uh, You say, preacher, did it have some partial fulfillment on Pentecost? Well, maybe, I guess you could say that and see it that way. But certainly not the fulfillment of it in its fullness. No, this is talking about a day when God will bring Israel back into the land as a righteous people. And we see two things in this chapter. One, in these verses we've read, we see Israel prospering. We see them not struggling. We see them not unbelieving. We see them not faithless. We see them not without righteousness, but we see them knowing the Lord in truth and sincerity. Look down at verse 21 of this chapter. He says this, and we preached on this just a few weeks ago. <coughs> Remember these, O Jacob and Israel... For thou art my servant, I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. 
I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains. O forest and every tree therein, for the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Again, not a fit representation of Israel as she exists today. But one day God will bring all this to pass in the nation of Israel. And here we see them not just prospering, we see them praising. We see them recognizing that God's plan has been brought to perfect fulfillment and that God's plan was altogether wisdom and righteousness. We find them gathered in from the four corners of the world to Jerusalem that they might worship at His feet and praise Him for His majesty and for His grace and for the wisdom of His counsels and that He hath done all things well. See, all of this could have been brought to pass when Christ appeared the first time. All of this could have been brought to pass in His first advent. And likely there would have been a second advent in the sense of Him returning to overthrow the Roman Empire from them. But it all could have happened in that same span of time. But because they rejected Him, it was postponed, it was delayed. It's still promised. And I still believe God's going to bring it to pass. I still believe God's going to do that very thing. So we see that there's a gathering of Israel and there's glory in Israel. But on that day, turn to chapter 45 and I want to read a few verses to you. I love this passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 45, verse number 17. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it, He created it, not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say in the Lord, have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So we see that in this day of the millennial kingdom, there will be a gathering of Israel There'll be glory in Israel, but thirdly, there will be grace in Israel. I don't really know how it could be said more clearly than how God says it in verse 17. Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. He says in verse number 24, in the Lord have I righteousness. It's obvious that this is not just a a cultural association. It's obvious that this is not just a, a national tranquility. It's obvious that this is personal soul salvation that Israel will partake in one day when they've looked on Him whom they pierced and by faith believed in Him. In other words, God's plan is to justify them as a people. 
Now you say, preacher, why is this so relevant to our lives? And what does this teach us about Jesus Christ? Well, I'd remind you that Christ wanted to bring all this to pass in His earthly ministry. His desire was to make them a righteous people, a sanctified people. And therein lies the very reason they rejected Him. Because their hearts were hardened and they refused to hear and they refused to heed and they refused to see. If you want to understand something about what is included in the catalog of Christ's earthly ministry and the stories that are contained, you have to look at it through this prison. If you want to know why John tells us about a period of time when men are following him and they're thronging about him, but then he begins to talk about drinking his blood and eating his flesh and And the Bible says they said this is a hard saying. And they they walked away and they followed Him no more. And the Bible says that from that time forth, many would not follow after Him. That's not just a a passing narrative, you know, unique sort of trivia that's given to us. That's a pivotal moment in Israel's history. You remember whenever the Pharisees come and they accuse Him of casting out devils by Beelzebub. And He talks about them blaspheming the Holy Ghost and how that there would be no relief and no pardon and no help for them if they blasphemed the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible reveals that after that point in Matthew 12, he, he turns away from his ministry to Israel, begins to start talking about the kingdom of heaven in parables, talking about it in a spiritual sense. What was that? Man, that was the moment when the people were turning away from him. Why did they do that? Because he came and preached unto them righteousness. He told them, you are not whole, you are not holy, you are not healed, you do not have what you need. But in me, you can have all of those things. He is the servant of the Lord, came and showed righteousness unto them. It shined a light on their unrighteousness. Light came unto darkness, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They turned him away, they turned their back on him, they nailed him to a cross. And therein all these promises suffered a delay. They've not been derailed. He'll not fail, he'll not be discouraged till he brings them all to pass. But certainly they were delayed for a season. So we find the earthly ministry to Israel in the first three chapters. The millennial majesty of Israel in the next three chapters. But in these closing three chapters, we find a more current, a more imminent uh, topic to Israel in her history. And that is the Babylonian captivity of Israel. Now you say, well preacher, why is this included where it's at? And part of the reason is because God is listing things that He wants to do in their nation. But this is disconsonant with where they're at at that moment in their history as a people. No doubt Isaiah thought to himself, you know, Lord, you got high hopes for what you want to do in Israel. I look around and I see idolaters. I look around and see spiritual adulterers. I see drunkenness and, and, and theft and oppression and violence and cruelty. Lord, what are you going to do about how broken Israel is? And so Christ reveals one of the things He would do, addressing what is always from their history, all the way really you could go back to to the time whenever Rachel hides her idols in the camel and carries them with them out of Laban's house, all the way till this moment what had been a problem for Israel, and that was their idolatry. Up till this moment, Israel had been an idolatrous nation. The first major foray into public idolatry was uh, the experience at Baal Peor whenever they married together with the uh, Moabites and adopted their gods and God struck thousands of them dead in His wrath. But from those early days, even until this moment, they were an idolatrous people. And God addresses what He's going to do about the idolatrous nature of Israel as a people. Now let me stop and say this. Idolatry is still a problem in our world today. 
Gentile idolatry is still very prevalent. No, it's not in the form of little idols and figurines that we pray to, although there are some that engage in that. But largely, largely it's the idolatry of materialism. And Israel today still has that same problem of idolatry with materialism. The book of Zechariah sets forth a prophecy of how Israel would be carried off into captivity and they'd bring back with them this woman that would be an idol inside of an ephah. And she was a picture of the spirit of materialism that still to this day plagues Israel as a nation. But in the Babylonian captivity, what we could call ancient or, or archaic idolatry, the idolatry of images was expunged from Israel's national character. Again, materialism is still a large problem today, but God dealt with this problem of them following after other nations' gods. Notice three things here and then we'll be done. Look with me in chapter 46. The first thing that God points out in regards to this process is the folly of Israel's idolatry. It says in verse number 1, Bel. Now, Bel is a false pagan god. We would know him through the name Baal. Bel boweth down. Nebo, another Babylonian false god, stupid. Their idols were upon their beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden. They were a burden to the weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. In other words, he's pointing to the fact that the idols, far from lifting burdens, are burdens themselves. Far from helping anyone with their loads, they become a load themselves. Verse 3, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even to your old age, I am he. And even to whore hairs will I carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will ye liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we may be like. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder, they carry him and set him in his place and he standeth. From his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet he cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. He speaks to the current condition of Israel in that day in their idolatry. And he points out the foolishness that idolatry is. He says, don't you see all these people loading down their beasts of burden with these idols that are supposed to be gods to them? And instead of the gods carrying them, they're carrying the gods. And instead of the idols alleviating their burdens, the idols are burdens unto them. He says, stop and weigh that against what I have been for you, Israel. I have not been a burden. I've been a burden bearer. I have not been an obstacle to you. I I have been a pathway to you. I've not been someone that has hindered you. I've been someone that has helped you. And he's reminding them and pleading with them, wishing no doubt that they wouldn't have to go through this affliction, through this captivity, and pointing to them how foolish it was that they had rejected the living God to follow dead, broken idols. He points to the folly of Israel's idolatry. Now, no doubt Israelites in that day would have thought to themselves, well, you say that, Lord, but look how well Babylon's doing. If their gods are not real, why are they so powerful? If their gods are not real, why are they so rich and so wealthy? If their gods are not real, then why do they seem to be prevailing? God addresses that. And he points to not just the folly of Israel's idolatry, but to the fall of Babylon's glory. 
He says in verse number one of chapter 47 to Babylon as a nation, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind mill. Uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit thou silent, and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was wroth with my people, I have polluted mine inheritance, and given them into thine hand, thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. Let's pause there for a moment. I want to explain some of this imagery. God is speaking to Babylonians that in the near future from where Isaiah is standing would have dominance and authority and mastery over Israel. They, of course, would carry them into captivity and they would make them slaves and treat them hard and and use them cruelly. God's saying, I have allowed this to judge Israel as a nation. But you have taken too much upon you in glorying in the fact that I've used you. And he's saying, you'll no longer be the master, you'll be the slave. You'll take the millstones and grind mill. You'll uncover the locks. In other words, you'll, you'll shave off your head. You'll make bare the leg, uncover the thigh and pass over the rivers when they are carried into captivity. And of course, we know that the uh, Persians would come later on and overthrow the Babylonian empire. In other words, it's pointing to the fact that earthly thrones, earthly powers, earthly empires will crumble before the Lord. And that these powers that Israel was placing their faith in, that that was so foolish, because one day God would cast them down as well. Verse number 7 says about the Babylonians, Thou saidest, I shall be a lady forever, so that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst remember the latter end of it. Therefore hear now this, Thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am and there is none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment in one day. Speaking to Babylon, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. Strong imagery being used here, but what it's saying is that your people, your children will be destroyed, will be cast off, will be carried into slavery. And your spouse, in other words, the nations that have courted you and that have supported you, will abandon you. And you say, preacher, that's interesting, that's a great history lesson, but what does it have to do with what God's doing today? Well, don't you see that God brought this to pass in a sense when Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede stormed under the gates of Babylon and sacked the city on that night that uh, Belshazzar was holding his feast in the under catacombs of the city. But there's a future fulfillment that will come to pass as well. For the Bible describes the empire of the Antichrist as being the great whore of Babylon, as being the embodiment of that spirit of of world idolatry and, and that spirit of materialism. In the same way that God would have done that at that time for Israel, He will likewise do it one day in the tribulation when He throws down the empire of the Antichrist. So we see the fall of Babylon's glory. But what is the purpose in all this? We'll look in chapter 48. We'll read a few verses be done tonight. 
Why did God put Israel through this furnace of affliction? Well, we could call it this, the furnace of Israel's purity. Through this affliction, God cured Israel of her, uh, we could use the term idolatry of imagery. The idea of worshiping foreign gods and, and, and false idols and, and, and things of that sort. From their captivity onward even to this day, that's not been the God that they've worshipped. Money and position and, and power have been gods that Israel has worshipped. But it's not been uh, false gods of, of Gentile nations. On that day when God sent them into captivity, and the imagery is very instructive. Babylon was the Mecca of idolatry of the ancient world. And it's almost like God said, you want idolatry? I'll send you into the very heart of idolatry. And He sent them there that they might have their fill of it and that they might grow sick of it. Listen to how he describes it, Isaiah 48.10. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. All ye, assemble yourselves and hear. Which among them hath declared these things? The Lord hath loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have called him. I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. Come ye near unto me. Hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. There am I. And now the Lord God and His Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans, with a voice of singing declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth, say ye, the Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. Again, what does it teach us today? What does it point to today? Well, you know, in many ways, the Babylonian captivity is sort of a microcosmic example of what God has done in Israel writ large. It's interesting, if you study uh, eschatology, and if you study prophecy, you'll find that the Babylonian captivity marked the beginning of a season of time called the times of the Gentiles. This period of time is marked by a time when Jerusalem is trodden underfoot, is under the authority and possession of Gentiles, when Israel is scattered as a people and under subjugation to Gentile world powers, and when the world is run largely by Gentile nations. We're still living in that day today. We're still in the times of the Gentiles. 1948 didn't change that. Uh, the return from captivity during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah did not change that. Israel has, from this moment till today, always and forever been a vassal nation. And they still are today. Their security and their peace is, is dependent upon Gentile nations being willing to enter into treaties and pacts with them to protect them, to fund them, to use their militaries to keep them safe in the land. We're still living in the times of the Gentiles. Why did God allow that? And what's the consummation of that? 
Well, just as God allowed Israel to enter into the Babylonian captivity, that He might purify and refine them, that He might expunge from their national conscience a form of idolatry that had been insidious and persistent. So likewise, in a large sense, He's allowed Israel to be afflicted by the Gentile nations at large. And that will persist until a final persecution under the Antichrist Himself. Whenever that reaches its very epic, when that reaches its very climax, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, (laughs) will appear in power and glory on a white horse with His vesture dipped in blood to redeem Israel from those Gentile world powers, to bring them to a place of salvation and righteousness, and to set them in the land in the way that He had always envisioned. We have a microcosmic glimpse of this in the Babylonian captivity. But you can read the rest of your Bible and see that this has always been what God has been doing and it's what He's still doing to this very day. And there's not a single promise that God has made to Israel that will fail. He'll bring it all to pass. And you know what they'll say when it's all said and done? They'll have to say, the Lord is my salvation. He's my Redeemer. He hath wrought all of this and He hath redeemed His servant Jacob. 